If you have your Bibles, you can turn them open to Revelation chapter 6. Again, this week, we have to read a large portion portion of Scripture, and the reason we are reading this large portion of Scripture is because I realize that if I'm going to teach this book to you, you have to hear it. (laughs) So we're pretty much going to read all of the book of Revelation together out loud, not right now, but in chunks over the, the next number of weeks. My son, Elliot, who's not here this morning, last week, Uh, leaned over to uh, his mom while I was reading and said, "Uh, Dad's reading about some weird stuff, (laughs) which is true. I am reading about some weird stuff. So let's read about some more weird stuff together, shall we? Uh, Beginning in chapter 6 of Revelation, verse 1. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come. I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and it was given a crown. And he rode out as a, as a conqueror bent on conquest. Then the Lamb opened the second seal. I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wage and six pounds of barley for a day's wage, and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, will you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then uh, each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed as they, as they had been. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was, an earth, uh, there was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red, and the stars in the sky fell to the earth. As figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind, the heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich and the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? Chapter 7. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back four winds of the earth to prevent their wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on the living God. Uh, He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power uh, to seal power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the forehead of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from the tribes of Israel. I'm not going to read all of those tribes and those numbers, so hop down to verse 9. In verse 9, after this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every 
nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders of the four living creatures. Um, they fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, there, uh, these, uh, there in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eye. Uh, chapter 8, verse 1. When he opened the, the seventh seal, there was a silence in heaven for half an hour. And I saw the s seven angels who stand before God, and the seven trumpets were given to, and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people and the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of the people, went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it at the earth. And there came pearls of thunder, rumbles, uh, flashings of light, and an earthquake. This is the word of the Lord. You can remain seated. All right. Um, I was sitting at my desk up in our bedroom yesterday looking over my message for today when the stars, when the, when the sky began to darken and I heard pearls of, not, was it pearls of thunder? Is that the proper term? I heard thunder in the distance and then I saw hail begin to fall from the sky and I thought this is a very appropriate weather uh, to be looking over my sermon on the book of Revelation, specifically this particular passage. Because there are some fantastic images in this chapter of Revelation, aren't they? Uh, there, there is the moon turning to blood. The heavens are rolling away like a scroll. There are four horsemen of the apocalypse and all of that. And when you read these chapters in this book, it can be very difficult not to go into some kind of, some very serious end-of-the-world type thinking, right? That's kind of where we're naturally led. The images are so big, and they're so grand, and they're often very violent, and they, and they create in us what I would call a sense of fear, a kind of trepidation, maybe, when we read this, uh, this particular passage. And when we read it and we, we hear it, I also think some significant questions probably come to the top of your heart, like they came to the top of my heart when I read this passage. One of, one of, the, question, one of the central questions that I, ask, uh, when I read, that I asked when I read this passage is, is God going to release a series of death horses upon the world, right? Is this what God is going to do? But we have to continually remember when we read this book that it was not written to scare us. If you were with us in week one, we talked about that. 
And that it intentionally, this book uses intentionally powerful imagery to some, in sometimes counterintuitive ways. It takes, a, it takes a violent image, it takes a, it takes a very intense image, and then it flips that image on its head and, and uses it in a counterintuitive way. Sometimes the images that seem most violent are actually the most beautiful and point us to conclusions that we might not have expected with the first or second or fifth time we read through this book. But what I hope to do today in, uh, as we look at this section of the book of Revelation, roughly from chapter 6 to chapters 8 verse 5, which is, all, which is a section that encompasses this story of, a, of the seals being removed from a scroll, which is a strange image in and of itself, right? Um, and we're going to look specifically at this passage uh, and we're, what we're going to see as we look at this passage is that it is not intempt, attempting to incite fear. It's not attempting to incite fear, but to point something out to us about the state of the world, about the reality of the world that we live in. But it's also meant, I think, to inspire Christians to live in the midst of a broken world in a more Christ-like way. So the point of this book, as we've been saying, is to make us live a little bit more like Jesus in a broken world, to exalt Jesus, to make Jesus the center of our lives. Or, or if you, so here's how we would phrase this in last week's language. Uh, last week, we talked about how this book uh, encourages Christians to align themselves with lamb power the power exemplified in the slain lamb in verses in, in chapters four and five, rather than in the powers of this world. So as always, these chapters are packed with imagery and all kinds of interesting pictures and uh, all kinds of interesting verses, and we simply can't cover it all. I know it would be nice if we could talk about every nook and cranny of this book, but we simply can't. But what I want to do today is to follow the basic structure or arc of these couple of chapters and walk through it, basically from top to bottom, and talk through some of the major images that we're introduced to, some of the, the primary pictures that John sees and is communicating to us, walk through those images and try to understand them a little bit better. So basically what we're going to do today is we're going to walk through the opening of all of those seven seals on this scroll, all right? That's what we're going to do today. Now, before we get into that, of course, we need to set the scene a little bit for us because this is the book of Revelation and we always got to get our bearings. In Revelation 4 and 5, the two chapters we talked about last week, we saw this magnificent picture of the throne room of God. It's, it's described as like an ocean of, uh, of pure glass. It's a beautiful picture. And over all of creation, there is singing, there is praise to the creator and to the slain lamb. And the picture we get in 4 and 5 is of the celebrating, the, of all of heaven celebrating the reality that this slain lamb has won the victory, right? It's like a, it's like a victory party, basically. And at the end of chapter 5, we get this exclamation of praise. In Revelation 5.13, we hear this. To him who sits on the throne and unto the Lamb, be praise, honor, and glory, and power forever and ever. Right? 
Also, last week, we, we, we talked about this idea of a scroll. You know, the scroll in Revelation is used in a metaphorical way to represent the plan of God for ruling his kingdom. That's what the scroll represents. Uh, remember, in the ancient world, we, t- we spoke about this last week, but in the ancient world, the way a sovereign ruler executed his authority was by sending a scroll, and that scroll would be embossed or marked with his, with his sign or his seal, often in a ring or in a different type of mark, pressed into wax that, uh, ca- that signified that that scroll carried his authority with it. And Revelation is playing off this image in, in very powerful ways to show us that it is the lamb, the slain lamb from chapters 4 and 5, who has the authority to open the scroll and re- will reveal to the reader what God's rescue plan for the world actually is. All right? Are you tracking? You can nod your head if you're tracking. All right, thank you. That's good. I need a little help sometimes, all right? Now, it would make sense, given the, given the victory song that we hear sung in chap- at the end of chapter 5, that when you would turn the page to chapter 6, you would, see, you would hear or see the story of God executing his plan for the world. So what is his rescue plan? You would see him start to work that out. But when you turn the page from chapter 5 to chapter 6, you, get, you go from a song of victory to a very different picture, don't you? You get, uh, you get a picture of terrible judgments and destruction is what you get in chapter 6. Uh, bef- bef- but before the, the scroll can be read, uh, before we can know what God, through the victory of the Lamb, how God plans to rescue the world, we get a glimpse of how terrible the world has actually become. That's what we get a glimpse of here, I believe. And we are first introduced to one of the most well-known images in all of the books of Revelation. And that is the image of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Who's familiar with this image of the four horses of the apocalypse? A gentleman came up to me after first service and was like, it was, no, it was Notre Dame's defensive front or something like that in the 80s. And I said, I have no clue what you're talking about. Uh, but that's for Bruce. Anyways, uh, in chapter 6, we are introduced to this image that's kind of, that floats around in popular culture of four horsemen riding different colored horses, wielding death, disease, economic despair, and pestilence. These are the, this is what these four horsemen wield. Now, we all kind of know, if you grew up in church like me, you're all familiar with this image, and it was inherently scary to you. No doubt you had an illustrated Bible that had a picture of these four horsemen, and it freaked you out, right? Like it did me, and it kind of sticks in your head. And when we read this section, it is clear to us, right, that something deeply symbolic is happening. Something, Something is trying, John is trying to describe something to us. But when we read the images the first or second or fifth or tenth time through, we don't always understand what is trying to be what what we're supposed to understand or what is being communicated from this picture of these four horsemen and one of the things that is particularly difficult to sort out at least for me when i read this is that it seems like god himself is sending these four horsemen doesn't it right that's what it seems like god is commanding them to go that word that says come is also could also be translated go in Greek, 
And that God is commanding them to go and do all of that terrible stuff. It looks, in fact, like the lamb is the source of the destruction and death that the four horsemen bring, doesn't it? That's what it looks like on the surface. But remember, remember what we talked about the last couple weeks about keeping the slain lamb at the center of the story and that image of the slain lamb at the center of the story. Uh, And if you do that, uh, and we read about how the, the lamb's sacrificial death has already won the victory, that the, that the battle has already been won, it's just a matter of how that victory gets applied in the world. If we keep that image at the, at the center, then that makes it maybe even a little bit more complicated because they, they seem counter, it seems counterintuitive, right? Like what's happening in chapter 6 almost goes against the image of the slain lamb of Jesus that we see in chapter 5. Uh, what I think is happening here, and I'll just lay all my cards out on the table this morning, is that John is showing us a picture of what a world that lives in rebellion against God naturally looks like. This is what I think is happening here. These four horsemen are the basic evils of human society, aren't they? Specifically, they're the basic evils the empire wields against human society. Uh, These are the type of powers the empires wield and inflict on all of humanity. Think about uh, the story of a war-torn nation uh, and what it looks like after the war has swept through, right? It looks a lot like this, uh, this chapter in Revelation. Violence, economic difficulties, and finally disease and death. It's a story we've heard many times in the world, from Genghis Khan to Napoleon. We've heard this story, right? And what I think Revelation shows us in vivid detail is what a world without God looks like in all its brutality. I think that's what we see here. And though it seems that God is making these things happen, I do not believe that that is precisely what is taking place. I really don't. What I think is happening here is that God is allowing the world to bear the judgment or the natural consequences of its rebellion against God. I think that's what's happening here. Here's what, how one Bible scholar, a guy named Bruce Metzger, says it. He says it better than I do. He says, these disasters are the results of the working out of God's righteous laws for the universe. God does not approve of famine and death and hell, but they are what must follow if people persist in opposing God's rule. God wills community which is the consequence of caring and love. Ignore physical laws like stepping off a cliff and disaster follows. Neglect moral laws and disaster ensues just as surely. The woes described here are the result of not taking seriously God's command to achieve community and justice. God does not will the woes, but as long as we are free agents, God allows them. The four horses of the apocalypse are a brilliant little vignettes that show what happens in the sphere of politics, of military action, and of economics whenever men and women oppose the will of God. Interesting, right? God does not have to command the four horsemen because they are already doing all of that work themselves. Think about it from the perspective of Genesis 1 with me for a moment. Adam and Eve turn their backs on God, right? They turn their backs on God And what happens, like, literally 10 seconds later when you're reading the chapter? They have two children, and as soon as those children are grown, what do they do? One of them murders the other one, right? 
death, pestilence, war are not aspects of God's character, right? Thus, he cannot actively do those things. They are the natural results of sin and waywardness in a world, and thus, sin, in a sense, carries its own judgment with it, okay? Sin has this kind of rebounding or rubber band effect. To choose rebellion against God is to choose death. It's like drinking poison for yourself and then blaming God for the fact that you died, right? Or the poison maker for the fact that you died. And when humans misuse power for our own purposes and our own ends, it brings suffering and disaster. The story of history is the story of this happening over and over and over again. The history of the world is full of examples of this very thing. So before the scroll is opened and before we can see the plan of God to rescue the world, we get a picture, exemplified through this picture of the four horsemen, of just how broken and in need of saving the world actually is. That's what we get here in Revelation. And just exactly how terrible that judgment, that natural judgment that is inherent in our own sin can be. And it can be very, very bad can't it? Our sinful actions, my sinful actions, can rebound on me in judgment and create some pretty horrific situations. And this is in part why our sin as individuals is never personal, is it? Because my sin, the ramifications of my sin in the world, has a kind of rebounding effect on other people, doesn't it? This is why the corporate sin of an empire like Rome that we see in the book of Revelation has this devastating impact on all manner of people. The world that runs after its own ends and its own purposes in rebellion against God and in sin will naturally reap, not by by expressed action of God, but will naturally reap the consequences of that sin and rebellion. It's a law of the universe. And that law is being pointed out to us in this picture of the four horsemen. Now, after we see these first four seals opened, which are, which are the, four, the, the four horsemen, we get a picture, uh, and we get this picture of the state of the world. We then see the, the, the way that this brokenness that we see in the world, what result it has had for followers of the Lamb. Okay? That's the next picture we get here. And the result that we see is that a number of, of Jesus' followers, these martyrs, uh, are dead. Right? That's the picture we get. And that they are crying out for justice. They are crying out for justice. In verse 10, we hear this. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. Now, follow me here. Those who have followed the Lamb, who have in effect gone against the flow of the world, and, uh, now stand under, and now stand under the kind of boot of the, the empire, specifically at this time of Rome, have been brutalized and martyred. This is the picture we get. 
And John is a prophet here, so he is projecting out into the future. He is telling the churches that this is something that's going to happen to you, right? So this is a, this is a prophecy of sorts here. But, um, but John is saying this persecution and this, this type of problem is going to ramp up. And again, remember what Revelation is all about. It is, it is meant first and foremost to encourage a small and marginalized church in the first century that was struggling under the boot of the Roman Empire, just as many Christians in our world suffer today, by the way. By the way. And, and here we hear, we, we hear the theme that is carried throughout the Bible, this, this theme that we hear the, the martyrs crying out to God. If you've been reading with us through the Bible this year, we started at the beginning of the year, our year of biblical literacy, and then COVID hit, and I'm sure a lot of that has kind of tailed off. But if you've read through the Bible before, or if you've been reading through the Bible with us, you'll, you'll know that there is, a, there is a theme of the people of God crying out. It's a common theme. The first time we see it is in the book of Exodus, where the Israelites, who are under the boot of the Egyptian empire this time, are enslaved, and what do they do? They cry out before God. And you know what happens? God hears their cry, doesn't he? He hears them. And God is moved by this cry for justice, and he acts, and he acts. And the, the story we get in Revelation is the same, that God is moved by the cry for justice that he hears for God's kingdom to come, for his, for his will to be done, for his rule to be made manifest in the earth. And the point here is simply that God hears the cries of his people. But he also wants to assure his people, and he wants to assure these uh, persecuted or martyred people that, that they personally will also have a role to play in bringing his kingdom purposes about. They will partner with him, in a sense, in seeing that kingdom or that, that plan that is on the scroll come to fruition. And the picture John is given that is meant to encourage and inspire the church as they suffer persecution is this really interesting picture of 144,000, of the 144,000. Now, this number, this particular number of the 144,000 has really thrown people for loops for centuries, actually. Uh, the Jehovah's Witness believe that this is the total number of people who will be saved, um, because they use this number as a number for that, which I think would make it hard to get people through the doors, but um, that's on them. Uh, and Christians who read this very symbolic book, uh, if, when Christians who read it overly literally have spent a lot of time trying to figure out exactly who this 144,000 is. Uh, but to be honest with you, um, this is not a very confusing number. Um, if you have a good reference Bible, you'll be able to see where this number references back to, and it kind of clears it up pretty quick. In the book of Ezekiel, in chapter 48, we get a list of the army of the Messiah. Ezekiel is prophesying about what it will look like when the Messiah comes, and we, we get a prophecy of that army, and the number of that army is, I'll let you guess, you're geniuses. That's what you are. So this 144,000 is a number, but it is a symbolic number that represents the complete number of God's people. All right? This is what it represents. The army of the Messiah is God's people. 
all right? And we know specifically that it's referring not to a specific number, 144,000, because right after the 144,000 is listed, if you have your Bibles, you can see this, chapter 7, verse 9, immediately following that list, we hear this in verse 9. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every tri nation, tribe, people, language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Does that make sense? So it's this 144,000, but then all of a sudden it becomes this great multitude. And actually something that is important as you read the book of Revelation, you have to pay attention to when John says, I heard something, but then I saw it. And in this passage, you remember earlier in chapter 4 and 5, John hears that the lion of the tribe of Judah is uh, powerful to open the scroll, but what he sees, what he sees is most important, and what he sees is the slain lamb, right? And in this passage, the same thing happens. What he hears is of this 144,000, but then he turns and he sees this great multitude standing around the throne. And so we know that this 144,000 is simply representative of the multitudes of God's people, okay? Tracking? Good. Now, that, that's who the people are. But the question we have to ask ourselves is a deeper one than just who, the, who are they. The question we have to ask ourselves is who does this 144,000 people represent? What does it represent in the story? Now, if you read, like I said earlier, that um, this 144,000 in Ezekiel is represented as the Messiah's army, right? His military, those who will go with him. And that's an important thing to keep in mind as we head in when we ask this question of what does this number represent? So, if you read Revelation overly literally, you, you, have, you will have to, uh, you'll have to wrestle over this question. You'll have to o wrestle over this image that happens when, he, when John is describing the 144,000. And what he describes is something really interesting. He says that this army, as it were, of the Messiah are, are washing their robes in blood. You can look that up. Uh, and he's wa they're washing their robes in blood, and it makes their robes white rather than red. Now, taken literally, this is absurd, right? This is not how you wash things, believe me. I have children. I know how to—I don't. I, I, wa I do some laundry, just FYI. I'm not one of those, not one of those house husbands who doesn't do laundry, all right? Uh, no laughs. Not a single laugh there. Uh, but uh, taken literally, this is absurd, but— uh, interpreted symbolically, it's, it's a profound truth that John is trying to communicate to us. Because, uh, and it actually comes from a Jewish military metaphor, all right? So track with me here. To be covered in another's, uh, another person's blood for a Jewish soldier would render them ceremonially unclean, all right? So when Jewish warriors came back from battle covered in another person's blood, uh, they, would, they had to go through this purification kind of ritual or bathing process before they could re-enter society, right? This is something that happened. Now, in the story we have here, in the, in the picture we have here in the book of Revelation, instead of washing off the blood of their enemies to become clean, what are these warriors doing? What is this multitude of God's people doing? They are washing their robes in His blood. And it is the blood of the one whom they are following into battle. Right? 
Now, many scholars believe that John is not simply saying that their sins are washed away by the blood of this lamb, though that is absolutely true. He is also saying that this army wears white linen because they share in the blood of the lamb, meaning they are willing to suffer with Christ. Does this make sense? Uh, As it says in chapter 14, a little bit later, this 144,000 are willing to follow the lamb wherever he goes even to the cross. While the standard image of an ar- the army of 144,000 following the Messiah into battle is based on Babylon's kind of sword power dynamics in Ezekiel, John has turned this image on its head to communicate that they operate, this army of the 144,000, don't operate off of Babylon's sword power. They operate off of, here it comes again, lamb power. The power of self-sacrificial love. This is how they operate. Revelation wants to enlarge these Christians. Uh, sorry, not enlarge. He's feeding them a bunch of Big Macs. No, he wants to encourage these Christians who are suffering persecution. And he wants to encourage them that it is not by taking up worldly power that they win the victory but it is through the power of their testimony and their witness that is the key to their victory. You see, this picture shows us that God's kingdom victory does not come through vanquishing our enemies or through rebels, but in some sense, some, some spectacular and spiritual sense, comes through the sacrificial witness of God's people. This is how the message in the kingdom of God is won. The, uh, the people of God who have been redeemed from all nations in order to bear, bear prophetic witness to, to all nations use lamb power rather than the power of the world to do it. This is how they operate. Uh, worldly power or empire power results in, we've seen what worldly power or the power of empire results in beginning at the beginning of chapter 6. It results in the four horsemen. It results in death and destruction. Lamb power results in the coming of the kingdom in the judgment of all that which is evil in the world. That's what lamb power does. Olivia, if you could come up and play. And so there, there is this really fascinating promise that we see at the, at the end of chapter 7. For all of those Uh, followers of Jesus who live by lamb power rather than by worldly power. And it's, it's a promise that you've probably heard read at funerals when, uh, when you've gone to them, but it's from uh, Revelation 7 verse 16. And it says, never again will they hunger, uh, never will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor the scorching heat. And the, the passage goes on to talk about the, that famous passage about every tear being wiped away from every eye. Imagine if you're a persecuted people. The temptation of your life is to align yourself with, with, the, with these powers that uh, dominate and control in, in, of the sinful world. And John is trying to c- communicate to them, you got to hold the line. And that thing that though you think in the short run might be for your benefit, aligning yourself with worldly power, with these sinful powers, 
uh, though you think that might be good for you in the short run, in the long run, it's going to be bad, right? This is what he says. In the long run, it's going to be bad for them. But what might seem bad for you in the short run, suffering, persecution, difficulty, even martyrdom, in the long run looks like victory, right? It's this beautiful picture of what it means, of what it means to be a, a lamb power person. It means to not align yourself with the powers of of this present age. It means uh, turning away from sin, knowing full well that that sin will rebound back on us and have all kinds of devastating consequences in our hearts, but rather to align with the slain lamb, to live at, like he lived, serving and sacrificing and loving the world in such a way as though even, in the, even though in the short run it might be difficult, in the long run it will make for our victory and it will make for the coming of the kingdom of God. It's powerful stuff, isn't it? It is completely antithetical to the way our world works also, by the way. Have you ever heard that the kingdom of God is like an upside-down kingdom? Like, it's totally upside-down from the way we think things should go, the way the world believes things should go. And what John is showing us through this series of, I will admit, very confusing imagery is that the world that we think is right side up is actually upside down. In the world, the kingdom of God that everybody else thinks is upside down is actually just right side up. It's powerful. It's powerful. It's encouraging. Now, I want to move into the last, uh, the last seal briefly in chapter 8 and make our last point this morning. So we see the opening of the last seal, and at the opening of the last seal, there is silence. Poof. There's dead silence. And Revelation is one of the loudest, relatively speaking, books in all of the Bible. There's just so much going on. But in this passage, there's just silence for an hour and a half, roughly. And picking up in verse 3, we read this. An angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense together with the prayers of God's people went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar and hurled it on the earth. And there came pearls of thunder, rumblings, flashings of lightning and an earthquake. And now again, we have the question, is God throwing meteors at us? right? This is the question we have here. Is God literally hurling meteors at us? And I will say to you, no, that's not what is occurring here, all right? If you remember, the prayers of the saints are, um, are represented in the book of Revelation as this incense, these bowls of incense. And what we get here is a picture of the Old Testament temple, of that incense being offered up to God. And the picture we get is of the, this angel taking the incense that has gone from the realm of humanity, from earth to heaven. And now he's taking those prayers in the form of coals. And what's he doing? He's throwing them back at earth. It's this picture that the prayers of the saints have been effective, that they have affected things on earth. Again, the scholar Bruce Metzger says it this way. He says, the importance of these sim symbolic actions is straightforward. Assuming John's congregate, assuring John's congregation that their prayers are indeed heard in heaven and will prove effective on earth. This vision continues to encourage, particularly our persecuted brothers and sisters throughout the world, that God hears their cries and will give justice for them against their oppressors. Right? It's this picture of the fact that when the cries go up, the kingdom comes down. When the prayers go up, 
God works on our behalf. And can I be honest with you for a moment? We live in a very unpersecuted time, probably the most unpersecuted time in the history of, of the world. Most of us have never experienced anything even remotely close to what early Christians experienced or many Christians throughout the world right now are experiencing. And the question that always comes to my mind is, uh, we don't pray very much. We most certainly don't cry out to God. And I think the reason we don't do that is because we're so comfortable. We're so comfortable. You know what I'm going to do after church? I'm going to go lay down on my very nice couch. And I'm going to take a long nap, right? And if my son wakes up from his nap a little early, I'm going to be ticked, right? Because he cut my nap short. It's not a particularly difficult life, is it? But, but what John is encouraging the church to is he's encouraging them to a posture of prayer so that they will partner with God both in their actions in the world as lamb followers, living self-sacrificial lives, but also as a praying people to see the kingdom of God come. And we, as people who live in a, in a not particularly heavy or hot time for the people of God persecution-wise, need to hear John's words very clearly. We need to become a praying people. We need to actually, here's what we need to do. We need to see the brokenness in the world that is in other parts of the world, and we need to, we need to feel that. We need to mourn with those who are mourning and allow that to turn our hearts in compassion to prayer and to a cry to God, right? We need, we need to see the brokenness that we see sin creating in our own communities and even in our own lives. We need to see it. We need to ask God to show it to us, and then we need to allow that to turn our hearts towards God in this cry of prayer, that he would act in our world to see his kingdom come and his will be done in our circumstances and in our community and in the world. Our comfort causes us to lose this perspective that John is pushing at. But those who have ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit is saying. The Spirit is calling the church and has been calling the church throughout 2,000 years of the church to be a people who identify the brokenness that sin creates and to turn towards God in prayer and to move out into the world in love and compassion. It's like two, two hands, right? To turn towards God in prayer and then to move out into the world in love and compassion. And God promises that when we do those things in tandem, he will bring his kingdom, right? This is the picture we get in Revelation. And here's my encouragement. Maybe you could call it a challenge for us this morning. Can we start doing that more? Can we look away from the luxuries of our current affluent society? Can we identify with the brokenness that we see in the world? Can we partner with those who are experiencing pain? Can we turn that into a cry or a prayer to God and see God's kingdom show up in miraculous little ways all around us? You see, a people that understand this are people who see God showing up in all kinds of miraculous little ways. And I want to be a person, and I want our church to be a place where we see the goodness and the grace and the love of God and the miraculous power of God enacted in our midst in ways that we can barely understand. But yet, we still cry out, we still call out, we still act in accordance with the kingdom of God. Can we commit to that today? You can say yes.
If you say no, that's fine too. Anyways, let's, no, that's, actually it's not, you can leave. Will you, no, will you stand with me this morning? Let's, let's stand together and pray. I know this was a lot this morning. It will probably continue to be a lot because Revelation is a lot. It's a very extra book. But, but we can commit to, to uh, live Christ-like lives in the midst of a world that desperately needs uh, the witness and truth of Jesus, can't we? We can commit to that all the time. So let's pray to that end. Father, we love you. And we pray that you would help us to center our lives on Jesus that we would be people who would follow the lamb wherever he goes, that we would be people who would not love our lives or our comfort, that we would not be blinded uh, by the, blind to the pain, to the, to the difficulty, to the suffering of our world, that we would not be blind to those things, but would we see it and would we allow that to motivate us, to move us to the place of prayer and to the place of compassionate love and service. God, would you help us to be a people who call out to you whenever we see the brokenness in our world? And would we move towards our world in compassion and love, just like you move towards the world, just like you call, have always called all of your followers throughout all of time to move towards the world? Would you help us to be the people of God in the midst of brokenness, who, who speak words of compassion, love, and grace? We love you, Jesus. Would you transform our hearts? Would you make us more like you? And we pray it all in that name the name of Jesus. Amen. And amen and amen. All right. All right. Well, uh, if you brought a gift, you can put it in the box in the back. Uh, we uh, hope you can come back next week. I hope Revelation isn't too scary for you. All right. Go today in the grace and in the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ.